Fact Chat! Malcolm Turnbull announced that the laws of maths do not apply here. <laughs> One of my favourite brands of comedy aerial is brown people and black people making fun of white people. Senators have been dropping like flies recently. Shouting out the fact that in the Knowles Carter family, women just have one name. Backchat on FBI Radio. Yes, you're listening to Backchat, the freshest rap of news and current affairs on your radio. I'm your host, Swetha Das, and with me in the studio is our wonderful EP, Natalie Sekolovska. How are you? I'm good, Swetha. Hi, I'm back. I know, I'm very excited that you're back. <laughs> well, it's I'm nice glad to it. have you in the studio. <laughs> Thank you. Not yelling at me behind the screen. I know. Telling me to do better. I'm you can sure tell it's me a welcome <laughs> change. <laughs> I mean, now you can tell me to my face. <laughs> Levels up, levels down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is really exciting because we actually have a great show today. We have lots on the show. Yeah. We do, yeah. So we will be chatting about My Health Record with Ariel Bogle, technology reporter at ABC, and we've also got a package from one of our reporters about a campaign to fly the Aboriginal flag on the Sydney Harbour Bridge permanently. But first, Swetha, let's get into the international news of the week. Yeah, let's get straight into it. Um, and it is... Some pretty intense news. On Thursday, the Israeli government has pushed through a controversial law which calls Israel the national home of the Jewish people, defining Israel first and foremost as a Jewish state with Jewish people have an exclusive right to national self-determination. It also singles out Hebrew as the state's language and Arabic has been downgraded to a special status, status that despite... Israel's Arab population forming 20% of the state population. Um, and one of the clauses that stands out says that the state views the development of Jewish settlement as a national value and will act to encourage and promote its establishment. Oh, dear. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of debate as to whether this will have practical consequences of discrimination. Um, a lot of people are saying, look, this is merely symbolic and it's not as problematic because of that. But, you know, I, I'm sure there will be practical consequences f of discrimination for the Arab mi minority in the territory, which actually mainly comprises of descendants of Palestinians who remained on their land during the conflict between the Arabs and the Jews back when the modern state of Israel was formed. Mm. Um, so I don't think there's doubt that it'll have an alienating effect on Palestinians and it's definitely going to further divide an already deeply fractured society. I mean, enshrining it in law, you know, it's one thing, the symbolic and violent aggression, but like once it's in law, I'm sure that there are going to be other forces internationally like it's going to be interesting to see the condemnation or perhaps the support that's going to come out globally yeah and I think it's very um you know it, people say okay this is only symbolic but symbolic things like this are really emboldened in the attitudes and the beliefs of the people in that territory um so there really is practical backing behind this symbolic you know law because you know people are going to be acting out these, you know, racist attitudes and beliefs in their everyday life. And this yeah. is going to be impacting on, I guess, you know, the fractured society that they live in. I mean, totally. I mean, if if the government has said that this is the case, then what's going to stop people from acting on it? Like, yeah, we're just going to see what's going to happen. Yeah, so there, there actually seems to be a parallel between the situation in Israel and what's happening down here in Australia. 
Um, there's definitely some divisive language being used by our politicians, especially our Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, who's trying to convince everyone that African gangs are wreaking havoc in Melbourne. Oof. So let's have a listen to what Malcolm Turnbull had to say about this issue recently. There are Sudanese gangs in Melbourne. It is an issue. Uh, no one is making any reflections about Sudanese migrants, Sudanese in general. I mean, I've spoken about the enormous achievements of uh, Sudanese migrants to Australia in every respect. But the fact is, there is a gang issue here, and you're not going to make it go away by pretending it doesn't exist. I actually, I can't believe that we're still talking about this. Um, it feels like ages ago that Peter Dutton said that Melbournians should be afraid to go out to dinner because of Sudanese gangs. Yeah, I heard a comedian who was like, maybe people just don't want to go out to dinner with Peter Dutton. <laughs> and so they're found, they're like, it's because of the African gang. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yeah, so I actually read a piece by Nyadol Nguyen in the Saturday paper, who is incredible. Yeah. So she wrote about this issue. She makes a really interesting point about the commonality between Sudanese who are engaging in violence in Victoria, um, that it's not actually just their race, but there's also housing, unemployment, you know, struggles with school, particular issues that aren't just, um, that don't just belong to one race. But, you know, she says that these are issues that, you know, are facing, that Australia, that all Australians are facing. So these are Australian problems. They're not just Sudanese problems. They're not just ethnic problems. So why are we so hung up about their race. It's it's so easy to just point the finger, right? And then just have one factor to explain these problems. Exactly. It's it really uh yeah, it really reduces quite a complex problem and you're not really gonna solve a problem if you don't really understand what the issue is. Yeah, and I think it's um I, w- I was watching Walid Ali talk about this issue um, on the project and he made a really interesting point that with the Super Saturday by-elections coming up, um, that this is a way for politicians to win votes. I mean, it's it's rhetoric here that has the purpose of excluding and marginalising these groups because we know that that that's going to win votes. And if we actually look at the numbers from the Crime Statistics Agency in Victoria, only 1% of Victorians who were born in Sudan have actually engaged in violence and crime in the state compared to the 71% who were born in Australia. So, you know, why isn't this being seen as an Australian problem rather than just scapegoating a particular ethnic group? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously Christopher Pine didn't get the memo. This is what he had to say about this issue. Uh, do you have to go out to restaurants in the Melbourne? No, why? <laughs> Should I be? Oh, because of the, ga- the, the violence. I'm sorry, I wasn't following you, Michael. I didn't <laughs> understand the question. <laughs> oh, because of the gangs. Oh, <laughs> you can pinpoint right. the exact He's moment. Like, <laughs> which, like, are we, is it terror? Which one? And like, oh, the gangs. I know there are so many issues I, that we're relying on. It's oh, so confusing. It must be hard <laughs> not knowing which, like, race to blame. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fear. Oh, Lord. Well, we'll have to move on, but we'll definitely be following these stories intensely. Uh, but right now, Swetha, let's get into our first package of the show. This yes. is so exciting. So exciting.
exciting. So Sheree Toka is a Kamilaroi woman who last year started a petition to encourage the New South Wales government to fly the Aboriginal flag on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Our reporter, Eden Faithful, attended one of the marches Sheree organised last Saturday and put together a package for us to listen to. Let's check it out. The Aboriginal flag flies atop the Sydney Harbour Bridge only 15 days a year during Nadoc Week, Reconciliation Week and on Australia Day. This begs the question, why isn't it left up there permanently? If it's good enough to fly 15 days a year, it's good enough to stay up there permanently. That's Cherie, a Camilleroy woman. Last year, she started a petition calling on the New South Wales government to fly the Aboriginal flag on the Harbour Bridge all year round. It hasn't been an easy journey, but Cherie has worked tirelessly to spread word of the campaign. We've been campaigning a lot. We've been, you know, organising events across the bridge, um, you know, just small little walks just to raise awareness for um, the cause. Last Saturday, Cherie organised a bridge walk march on the Tarpeian lawn of the Royal Botanical Gardens in Sydney to amass support. Over 50 people showed up expressing their support for the flag's new home to be on top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I'd just like to thank you all and acknowledge uh, the Aboriginal people of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Sorry, I'm really nervous. <laughs> um, and I'd like to pay my respects to Elders both past and present. Paul Wright, CEO of ANTAR, Australians for Native Title and Reconciliation, has weighed in on the campaign to fly the Aboriginal flag on the Harbour Bridge permanently. We support... Uh flag being raised all year round. It's, a, it's just another step for reconciliation. There's lots of things that it should be pursuing and this would only be one of them. Um, and ANTAR, as a non-Indigenous organisation that supports self-determining um, rights for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and the issues that they find important, we'd always follow, I guess, the lead of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in Sydney, New South Wales and across Australia. The state's Labor government is also on board with the change. It has committed to flying the flag on the Harbour Bridge permanently if it is elected next year. Shadow Minister for Aboriginal Affairs David Harris spoke at the Bridge Walk March. It is absolutely outrageous that the Aboriginal flag flies in the Parliament, on public buildings everywhere, in every school across this state. Yet somehow, the gateway to our harbour where invasion first happened doesn't have the flag flying 365 days a year. There is further support from Greens MP in New South Wales Parliament, David Shoebridge. The fact we can't even get the Premier and the government to agree to fly the flag permanently rather than in token moments throughout the year shows what a lot of ground we've got to travel. I don't think there's any doubt it's very symbolically important, uh, particularly the iconic symbol of the Harbour Bridge and having the Aboriginal flag flying atop the Harbour Bridge. It would be one of those moments in reconciliation. But these kind of symbols are important not as an end in themselves. This continues the discussion, the much harder and deeper discussion about Aboriginal justice, about getting Aboriginal kids back to their families and stop seeing them taken at those extraordinary rates we see with basically the current stolen generation. It's about getting Aboriginal people out of jail. It's about stopping them dying in jail. And it's about addressing those systemic 
um, issues. So yes, let's get the flag up there. And every day we see the flag, let's work, work towards that more comprehensive Aboriginal justice. Backtrack contacted the New South Wales Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, and Deputy Premier John Barillaro, but both declined to comment. Only time will tell if the New South Wales government is willing to support Cherie's campaign. Conservative politicians, right-wing politicians, are deeply anxious about taking the obvious step of recognising First Nations sovereignty because that challenges some of our national myths, the terra nullius, that it's all ours, that we took it and it's rightfully ours. It's just historically obviously untrue. They, they, they fear, and they rightly fear, that it'll start having to recognise the reality on the ground leads to treaty, leads to economic empowerment, and that's something they're deeply frightened of. So far, Cherie has about 90,000 online signatures, which she can't send to New South Wales Parliament. This is because Parliament only recognises handwritten signatures. She has about 5,000 of those at the moment. She needs 10,000 to successfully lodge her petition. We've been attending like market stalls to get like signatures and what have you. Um, and we've just been really trying to raise awareness everywhere we can by attending certain events. Aboriginal people are very important people to Australia and I guess the rest of the world at the same time just because you know we are the living, oldest living culture still around and don't you think you know we as a country should be proud that we you know house the oldest living culture in Australia. So thanks to Eden for that package about Shuri Toku's petition and campaign to fly the Aboriginal flag on top of the Sydney Harbour Bridge permanently. Shuri's petition is still out there, so she's hoping to lodge it in November. We'll actually pop up the link on Twitter so you can log on and sign it. And then you can also get in touch with our Premier Gladys Barajiklian, um, you know, and let her know that this is an issue that Australians feel passionately about. Uh, seeing as Cherie needs handwritten signatures, um, we'll also let you know if she's organising more events, uh, which you can go to so you can sign hand sign uh, the petition um, and your signature will be counted as part of the 10,000, which will get sent to New South Wales Parliament. Yes, but now we're going to go to a song. This is The Beat Goes On by the internet. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio. Welcome back. That was the internet with The Beat Goes On. Swetha, what have we got on next? Yes, well, how much information about yourself do you put online? If you have Facebook, Instagram or Gmail, you've already accepted that you're giving up some of your data. But how do you feel about sharing your most sensitive private information? Your medical records. That's what the federal government's medical info database, My Health Record, does. And you have three months from Monday this week to decide whether you want to opt out of an online record of your prescriptions, test results, and any other info your GP or other medical practitioners might upload. ABC Online Technology reporter Ariel Bogle is our guest this morning, and she's here to explain everything about the My Health Record and help you decide whether you should opt out or not. How are you, Ariel? I'm good, thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So how does the My Health Record work? 
Sure. Well, the first thing to know is this uh, idea and project has actually been around since 2012. But back then it had a different, more convoluted name, like personally controlled electronic health record. But a few years ago, the government decided that they wanted more people in the program. So they switched from what was once an opt-in choice you could make uh, to an opt-out. So as you mentioned, people have until October 15 to tell the government they don't want this online health record. And basically what it's intended to do is to empower the patient, to empower you to have all your medical information at hand if you need it, to facilitate quick movement between doctors so you don't have to retell your story. Uh, maybe in an emergency you'd have all your medications listed in case they might clash with something new going on at the hospital, all those types of things. But it's very much um, about... It's not a comprehensive health record. It's not the same as your doctor's notes. It's just what your doctor chooses to add and also what you sort of facilitate and push for yourself. So it probably makes more sense for people to opt into something like this. Why is it opt out? That's a very good question. I think it's pretty clear that not enough people were in it and that's why they wanted to force people's hand. You know, there has been questions raised this week about whether that is a good uh, technique, whether it's in fact ethical to force people's hand when it comes to data as personal and as sensitive as health data. But the government, you know, they say that they believe this project will be of benefit to the majority of Australians and really assist with healthcare outcomes here. And that's what justifies the move to opt out. So, I mean, they're justifying it, say it's going to benefit people. But what are some of the risks of having a centralised medical database? Well, the first thing to know is just like anything you do online, you just not, can't guarantee 100% security. No online database is completely invulnerable. There may be ways for bad actors to get in. But that might be the least of our worries. What a lot of privacy advocates and doctors have told me this week is that they're just concerned that this database, the centralising of it, just gives more access to more people. You know, if your records are on paper or they're just stored locally on your uh, doctor's computer server in their office... There's a limited number of people that could ever access it, but this gives more access points to more people all over the country. Now, we have seen many times in the past doctors and you know other people that have access to databases like this abuse that power. We've seen instances of police looking up girlfriends. We've seen doctors looking up the records of celebrities. You know, this is not happening every day by any means, but it's certainly a possibility. And what privacy advocates tell me is they think my health record encourages that possibility. So this reminds me of, I, I read this article by Ross Anderson, who's a professor of security engineering from Cambridge. And he writes that in the UK, NHS databases are available to thousands who shouldn't have access to it. There are a lot of databases on things that shouldn't exist. So there's a database on um, the height and waist, weight of obese children so that they can give bonuses to people who have led successful public health campaigns. And so he wrote all of that back in 2009. He was saying that those databases are dodgy and unnecessary. We're still having this conversation nine years on. Why do you think this debate on databases is lagging in Australia? It's a good question. I think, like, to be fair to the project, there is important outcomes that can come from getting a really um, large sample of what a population's health looks like. You know, it would let the government make smarter decisions about where to put money, invest in health, could lead to research, new life-saving medications. Like, these are all possibilities. And to, uh, to sort of walk people through it, 
the on my health record data will be used for secondary uses and what secondary uses are, you know, taking that data, maybe anonymising it and using it for research or things like this. The government plans to make um, it accessible or allow people to apply to access the data, including pharmaceutical companies, as it turns out, but they have to have a, a you know, sort of goal that is not purely commercial, has to have public benefit also. And for the moment, they're also excluding insurance agencies from that, from being able to access secondary use data. But um, I guess what people have been really nervous about this week and telling me they're nervous about is just the fact that a lot of people, number one, don't know that that will also be happening. You know, the government has been telling them, well, look, it's a database for your own health records line. But that secondary use component, which will start happening around 2020, they told me, is not really being well publicised and made clear. And it's also opt out once you're in the record too. So say you've chosen to have a record, you actually have to go to the privacy settings and tick, I do not want my data used for secondary use to get out of it. So there's a lot of nudges in this project to maximise data sharing rather than protecting people's data. Interesting. Yeah, wow. So how do you go about opting out? Because I think a lot of people are actually confused um, about like what the process is. Like, do they have to log on? And, you know, I think you were writing an article about how people already had profiles and they didn't even know that their profiles existed. Like, I think there's just a lot of confusion around this whole process. Is, and, it, is yeah. it easy, I guess, like for someone who's older and doesn't know how to navigate these systems? Like, would it be easy for them to opt out? Well, yeah, you've raised a lot of good questions because, well, there's three main ways to opt out. You can obviously go online um, and to my health record and then, you know, follow the prompts to opt out. And I think you need your Medicare card, maybe your driver's license, that type of info. You can call their hotline. And in rural and regional areas, uh, there are forms available at post offices and places like that. Um, but yes, this idea around digital literacy is really important. So once you uh, have a My Health record, <clears throat> excuse me, if you've chosen to have one, you can set access controls. So you could put a number, a code over the whole record and only give that code to your doctor, excuse me, <clears throat> or you can do it for individual documents. But um, once again, those uh, protections are not in place by default. You have to actively log on and choose to turn them on. And that is what people have told me they're most concerned about. You know, It requires a high degree of the digital literacy to know about those uh, privacy controls available to turn them on. I mean, a lot of people I would imagine will never even access their My Health record. I mean, they may have just missed the fact that this project was happening. They may know about it and not be really invested in it. So, a lot of personal data could be sitting there, at which they might be uncomfortable with their dentist seeing at the same time as their doctor. You know, test results, for example. These are all the questions that are, have been raised this week and what a lot of people are concerned about. Um, just one last question. I think it was really interesting um, when you're talking about opting out um, that people, one of the ways is, uh, you know, people need their Medica Medicare card um, as well as their driver's licence to actually opt out. So for people who are actually concerned about privacy when it comes to this and are opting out because of their privacy, they actually have to give more details about themselves to actually opt out. How does that kind of work? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is the problem, but I, you know, it's a hard one because you also don't want people opting out without any ID or, uh, you know, creating records for people without their consent. And as we were discussing too, um, there are instances this week, many instances I've been contacted about where people have gone to opt out over privacy concerns only to log in and find they already had a record, in some cases loaded with hundreds of documents, um, Medicare data, prescription data. 
So there was a few ways that could happen. The government actually did a trial in the Blue Mountains in northern Queensland in 2016, which enrolled about a million people. And it really looks as well that a lot of people have, you know, either been actively opting in because they think it'll be good for their health, but also a lot of forms now at the, you know, maybe when you enrol a child for Medicare or when you go and do a test at a hospital, you might tick a box and not really read the form properly and have a health record created that way. So there's a few different angles there where people have had records created without informed consent, I suppose, would be the way to, the way to term it. Well, we're going to hear lots more on this, and I really encourage our listeners to check out your extensive reporting on the My Health Record on the ABC website uh, to find out more, because I'm sure a lot more will unfold. Um, and as we get closer to the opt-out deadline, we're going to find out what's going to be the repercussions of that. So thank you so much for speaking to us today, Ariel. Thank you. Um, and also thank you to our reporter, Eden Faithful, for her package about the Bridging the Walk campaign. And as always, thank you to our producers, Amelia Zhao and Cam Wilson. And thank you, Nat, for coming on the show today. No worries. That was great. Uh, we'll catch you all next week. We're going to end on a song, This Is Like I Used To, by Tanashi.